So Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27, and I'm just going to read to verse 31, and then um, chapter 4 will be read later. In this section, one of the main things to pay attention to is that the just will live by faith, so that the uncircumcised uh, or so the circumcised are circumcised uh, in their heart by faith or made just, and uh, and the uncircumcised are made just through faith as well. So all by faith, circumcised and uncircumcised. That would be Jews or non-Jews. Probably most of us in here would be the non-Jew category. Um, but let's look at Romans 3, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We're going to be doing the second half of our reading tonight. So that is Romans chapter 4, reading the whole chapter from verse 1. So that's Romans chapter 4, continuing on. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it not before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. Sorry, that is for if it is the adherents of the law. Verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. 
in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he drew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Lewis. Good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be in God's word with you again. Tonight is the final sermon in our Romans series for now. Uh, We're going to be taking a break from it after tonight and we'll come back to it again at a future occasion, which is yet to be planned. So we're capping it off tonight with Romans chapter 3, verse 27 to 425. Tonight's passage is all about salvation by faith. And to get us thinking, let's look at how salvation by faith strongly goes against the grain of humanity. Humanity is always striving to make themselves righteous, to save themselves by works. This tendency was as prevalent in Jesus and Paul's day as it is in ours. There were Jews who believed that if they kept God's laws, God's commandments enough, then they'd earn their salvation. Or there were those in Paul's day known as Judaizers, Jewish Christians who falsely taught that you must add something on top of the gospel. Namely, you needed to be more Jewish and get circumcised to be saved, to be really saved. You had to do something extra, add works to be really approved by God, missing the point of the gospel. Think about the world religions around us. All of them at their core require us to do something to be right with their false gods. Or some may have a belief in karma, not necessarily a god, but some higher force in play that you must do good to receive good or bad for bad. Or even today, there's a prevailing belief by many that if they were to die, they would be fine because they're good works outweigh their bad. Whatever God is out there, we'll accept them. But it is a salvation by works. Or perhaps one may believe that they are a Christian because they grew up in a church, even a solid gospel-centered one. They've been baptized, come to church every week, or serve in ministries. And deep down, they believe that the things they've done will earn them their salvation. They believe that because they are in a Christian environment, because of the things they've done, that God will accept them. You see, the temptation to works righteousness, to works salvation, can be as subtle as that. And it's the sinful tendency of our human nature. Now, Paul addresses this sinful temptation for the Jewish Christians at Rome who may still be tempted to believe that they are right with God because of their Jewish heritage, 
their circumcision, and their obedience to God's commands. Paul has already addressed this in the chapters that has come before, and now he's hammering it home. So far in Romans, we have seen Paul bring all humanity under condemnation, both Jews, God's Old Testament people, and Gentile, the non-Jews. Paul spent a considerable amount of time demonstrating in chapters 1 to 3 that all have sinned and deserve God's wrath. The Jews don't get a get-out-of-judgment-free card because of their Jewish status. They're still sinners. And last week, we came to the glorious heart of the gospel in 3, 21 to 26, that the righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, that God has given salvation as a gift to undeserving sinners. Sinners are made righteous, justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Instead of us, Jesus suffered under God's judgment. His wrath to set us free who would truly believe, truly have faith in the Lord Jesus. That is where we come to tonight in tonight's passage in 327 to 425. Following this glorious news, and Paul is going to dig deep into the assertion that he's already been making in Romans, that faith is the way that people are saved, not through obedience to God's Old Testament law. And Paul argues that it has always been this way, even in the Old Testament. Faith in Christ, in God, is the only way someone can be justified, made righteous before God. And it is this way both for Jew and non-Jew. But to begin, Paul starts with the implications of the glorious gift that God has given in Christ. And the implication is that there is no boasting. Let us look now to the passage in verse 27. Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It should be clear after three chapters of bringing all humanity under God's looming judgment that one's works, one's deeds don't play any part in salvation. We just have seen in 21 to 26 that justification comes through faith in a salvation that is all God's doing. He gives his pure righteousness to an unrighteous and corrupt people. He presented Christ as the sacrifice to receive his wrath in their place. He did it to demonstrate his justice and righteousness. He initiated it by his mercy and grace towards sinners. And he himself was Christ to sacrifice. He initiated it. He accomplished it. And he applied it to us who believe as passive recipients, not achievers, recipients of grace through faith. God did it all. So then, is it fitting that I boast in what I've done, how good I am, and what part I have to play in my own salvation? Absolutely not. It would be like someone who died, was absolutely dead, 
and then was miraculously resuscitated, then getting up and boasting that they'd resurrected, sorry, resuscitated themselves. Could use it in either instance. What is Paul arguing here? It is by faith that one is justified. One simply receives what God has done apart from their works of the law. Paul's argument could be summed up in the words of Pastor Stephen Lawson. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but a gift for the guilty. Therefore, how can we boast? Or in the words of Puritan Thomas Brooks in his book, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ, he says, A humble soul, meaning one that doesn't boast, looks upon Christ's righteousness as his only crown. The truly justified guilty cannot boast in his own deeds, but only revel in Christ's righteousness, only worship him. To boast in our works demonstrates that there isn't truly faith in what he's done, but rather that we foolishly trust in ourselves, that we think our corrupted good deeds are greater than his pure righteousness. The Apostle Paul continues his argument in verse 29 by holding up truth about God, that he is God over the whole world, Jew and Gentile, and that God is one in being, will and action, meaning he justifies Jew and Gentile in the same way, by faith. He doesn't have a special different way of salvation for the Jews. He is one way for all his people, faith. And following this, in verse 31, the Apostle Paul, perhaps anticipating what the Jews might ask in response to all of this, in essence asks, what then do we do with God's law? Do we throw it out if we're saved by faith? And Paul responds with a resounding, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Or you could say it like this, on the contrary, By holding to salvation by faith alone, I'm affirming God's law. And this is the way salvation has always been throughout the whole Old Testament. This introduces what Paul is about to unpack for his Jewish readers. That he is not teaching a new way of salvation, but that God saved in the Old Testament the same way that he saves in the New That is, salvation is by grace through faith. So how's Paul going to prove this? He needs to show us and his Jewish readers an example from the Old Testament if we're going to believe him. So he begins with the central figure in the history of the Jews, Abraham. Why is Abraham an important figure here? Well, he is the earthly father of the Jews, the one through whom the nation started, their forefather, to whom God made great promises of blessing, and the one who received circumcision from God as an outward confirmation of these promises. And these promises run throughout the entire Old Testament. We find his story in Genesis chapters 12 through 25, and the Jews would be intimately, not infinitely, intimately familiar with this part of the Bible. And Abraham is central to the identity of the Jews. So Paul starts with him in chapter 4, verse 1, saying, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, 
He has something to boast about, but not before God. See, Paul doesn't exalt Abraham to a position of righteous by works, because Scripture doesn't do that either. There are multiple times in Scripture that we see Abraham sin. Paul is bringing Abraham to the same level of us all. We cannot boast before God. We have all sinned, including Abraham, and fall short of the glory of God. Paul goes on. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul is quoting here from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where God makes a grand promise to Abraham, now an old man, that he shall have his very own son and that his offspring shall be as stars in the sky. Genesis 15, 6 says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul works with this language from Genesis and makes an argument from it. If righteousness was counted to Abraham, then it was a gift, not wages for his good work. It doesn't say, and God gave to Abraham what he was owed. Counted is the language of not getting what you deserve, but receiving a gift. Abraham simply received, believed in what God had promised him. He had faith in God and his promise, and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. By faith, God justified the ungodly Abraham. Abraham was justified by grace through faith alone. And note that faith or belief isn't put in opposition, sorry, isn't, um, isn't counted as a work. It's put in opposition to works in verse 5. Thus, faith is not a work itself, but is the channel by which we receive God's work for us. Paul continues his argument on into verse 6 with another key Old Testament figure, King David, the most successful, righteous, and glorious king of the Old Testament. If Abraham wasn't enough to convince you, he now goes from Israel's founder to Israel's greatest king. Paul now quotes David in support of his argument, where David writes in Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. These are not words of receiving what is owed. The words here are forgiven, covered, not count. These are all words of grace. We know that David, as glorious as he was, was a sinner that needed God's grace He committed adultery and murder. And David knew it. He knew that the only way he could be righteous before God was by grace. There's no mention of works in this psalm. David sees himself as clearly undeserving. But he is convinced that those who trust God are righteous and blessed. The fact that both the father figure of Israel and her greatest king knew what it was to have faith 
shows that the concept of salvation by faith is firmly rooted in the Old Testament. All of God's people in all time were justified by faith. In the words of Clement of Rome, who personally knew at least some of the apostles, wrote at the end of the first century, all the Old Testament saints were honoured and glorified, not through themselves, not through their own works or righteous behaviour, but through the will of God. And we too, who have been called through God's will in Christ Jesus, and not justified through ourselves, or through our wisdom, or understanding, or godliness, or through our own deeds done in holiness of heart. No, we are justified through faith. For it is through faith that Almighty God has justified all people that have ever lived from the beginning of time. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul moves on to verse 9, which I won't read out, but take a look at it in your Bible. You'll notice Paul keeps referring in Romans to circumcision and uncircumcision, as it was through circumcision that the Jews would mark themselves as being included in God's promise, God's covenant to Abraham. Circumcision was extremely significant as it marked a Jew as a Jew, linking them with God's covenant promise to Abraham. So it would make sense to a Jew, right, that the only people, the only, only those with the outward mark of circumcision will receive the promise, right? The question that follows in verse 9 is like that in 3.29. It may be that Abraham was justified by faith, but is justification only for those who have been circumcised as he was? Is it just for those who have received the outward mark? Paul answers this question by pinpointing the moment when Abraham was declared righteous. When was it? Was it after Abraham was circumcised? Showing that you need to get circumcised beforehand, before being declared righteous? No, it was before he was circumcised, at least 13 years before, if you have a look in Genesis 15. And why is this significant? Paul points out two reasons. Firstly, to make him the father of all uncircumcised believers, showing righteousness comes to them as well. And secondly, to make him, to make Abraham the father of all circumcised believers who are not merely circumcised outwardly, but who truly believe. In other words, both the uncircumcised and circumcised are only made righteous by faith. And both are Abraham's offspring by faith, not by mere outward mark. Paul has already addressed the Jews in chapter 2 that their outward circumcision doesn't make them saved. It's through an inward circumcision of the heart. Here he's proving it. Paul continues in verse 13, saying that God's promise to Abraham's offspring never came through works of the law, but by faith. And what was this covenant promise? Verse 13 sums up the promise like this. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Abraham and his offspring inherit everything. The full and complete blessing of God. 
There is no promise greater than this. This promise is biblically pointing us to the new creation, which you can see in Revelation 21 and 22. Yet the main point of Paul's argument here is actually the next part of the verse, that this promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Faith is the way we receive the promise. For God's law only points out our sin and shows us our need for righteousness. That is why the promise depends on faith. For if the promise had been given to those who could only keep the law, it would have been worth nothing. Because as chapters 1 and 2 have already shown us, no one can keep the law. And the result would have been only wrath and judgment. God wouldn't have been able to keep his promise of blessing if it depended on us, on our works. The promise, therefore, comes by faith so that God may indeed freely extend his blessings, both to Abraham's descendants in the flesh and to all who believe as he did and thus become his children, the flesh by faith and those that are not circumcised by faith as well, as God had promised. It must rest on God's grace. You see that in verse 16. On God's grace, by faith. For if it did not, we would not inherit the promise. For we would not be able to earn it. For we cannot keep God's law. It must rest on grace. Now Paul shifts in the second half of verse 18 to look at the God who made this promise and to look at Abraham's example of faith. In verses 18 to 19, we see Paul describing the humanly impossible that God had promised to Abraham. Abraham was as good as dead. This man was a hundred years old. A hundred. One zero zero. A hundred. And his wife had never conceived and she was about 90 years old. Nine zero. How on earth were they going to have their own child? It doesn't make sense unless it is God's doing. So how did they have faith in God that he would do as he promised? Firstly, Abraham recognized his own helplessness. Secondly, Abraham deeply looked to and trusted in the God of the promise. You see, as John Stott says, the nature of faith is not to be found in itself, but exclusively and entirely in its object. Abraham's faith wasn't found by looking inward on himself at any kind of faith he possessed. No, it was by looking entirely and dependently upon his God, upon who he is, upon what he's done and what he's promised. You see, Abraham in verse 20 grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. See, Abraham's gaze, his trust was fully upon God. The God who in verse 17 gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. His faith could only grow as he looked at his God. 
And that is the same for us. We must recognize our own helplessness and cast ourselves aside to look at God, to deeply trust in him. That is how we have faith. And that is how we grow in faith, by constantly setting our gaze upon him. Note too, that we know Abraham did have anxious moments, but it is significant that God didn't hold them against him. The New Testament record shows that his small amount of faith was sufficient because the key factor is God's faithfulness to his promises. So we come to the end of this passage in verses 22 to 25, where Paul says that all that was just mentioned is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now Paul turns and applies all of this to us. These words in Genesis 15:6 are for us too who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If we believe in God, as Abraham did, we will be made righteous. It is by faith in him that we are saved. But although Abraham is held up as an example, we have, in fact, a much greater ground for trusting that God will give life For we know that he has raised Jesus from the dead. Paul reaffirms the reason for Jesus' death and resurrection, which is that we might be declared righteous. Thus, it is through faith that Abraham is made the father of many nations, as God had promised. And it's also through faith that we are justified, becoming beneficiaries of that promise. We are made righteous by grace, through faith, with Christ as our righteousness. This is the only way that anyone can be made righteous before God. And this is the way that God has always worked. Now I must ask as we close, are you relying on your works? We may not be Jews resting on our Jewish heritage, But if you've grown up in a Christian family, have been raised in church, it can be incredibly easy to rest upon our Christian heritage or past actions to get into God's good books rather than have true faith. Why wouldn't God want me? I'm a regular at church. I serve sacrificially in ministries. I've been baptized. I give sacrificially to church. But do you recognize that you are a sinner in need of grace. Not just intellectually know it, but do you know it deep in your soul? Do you see your sin? If you don't, then how can you know his grace? If you aren't justified, sorry, you aren't justified by your Christian heritage, only by true faith. Examine yourselves. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, 
Do you feel like you have to do more before you approach God? As if God doesn't want you until you've tried your hardest. I urge you, see your helplessness, that you can't do anything. Trust in the merciful God who justifies all who trust in him, who gives life to the dead, who gave his only son to save helpless sinners like you and me. Come to him. Trust in him. He will receive you with open arms. If you want to learn more about Christ and what he's done to save, feel free to come and speak to me or to Mark, who was up here earlier, and we'd be happy to chat with you. Or if you can't for any reason, uh, feel free to take a booklet, uh, which you'll find in the foyer, which is titled Two Ways to Live. Take that home and have a read of it. And please deeply consider what's in there. But if you are a Christian and you are a believer here tonight, and you feel like your faith constantly wavers and is shaken as you look at yourself or the things of the world. Look to him. Look to his promise. Look to his grace. Look to his nature. Set your eyes more and more upon him and rejoice in what he has promised you in Abraham and in Christ, not on the basis of how much faith you have, but on the basis of his faithfulness alone. Take great joy and comfort in our God and let us increase in faith as we look to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that it is by faith that we are saved. Lord, if we were left to our own devices, we would be lost. We would not have your mercy and your grace It is by your will, by your initiation, by your sacrifice, by your doing that we are saved. We praise you, Lord, for all of this, for if you had not, we would be apart from you. We thank you for all the great benefits that you've given us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you that it is by faith that the promise rests upon. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in faith in you as we look to you. Help us to look to you. And Lord, would the things of earth grow strangely dim as we continue to look to you. And Lord, we ask that you would increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.